This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Why are middle school kids such assholes? I'm Hillary Frank, and I write books and make podcasts mostly about family and adolescence. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. When I say middle school, what do you picture? Any memories come to mind? Maybe kids made fun of your clothes, or your body, or your acne, or your race or sexual orientation. Maybe you were dropped by all your friends. Maybe you were slut-shamed or prude-shamed. There's no denying it. Middle schoolers are assholes. Middle school assholery has been on my mind a lot lately. For one thing, my daughter started middle school this year. And for another, I spent the last couple of years making a podcast about the darkness and absurdity of middle school. It's called Here Lies Me, and it's fiction. In the show, kids talk like real tweens. They curse, they have intense schoolyard debates about sex acts, and of course, they're assholes to each other. The series begins on the first day of eighth grade when a weird kid who calls himself God hijacks the morning announcements and delivers a message to a girl named Noah. Noah Bloom, you are unique. No. No, 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 no! And by unique, I mean, you're the only girl I can honestly look at without vomiting. <laughs> but besides, you're the only other Jewish kid in our grade, which makes us a perfect match. God out. So Excuse me for a moment while I go die. Here lies me, Noah Bloom, age 13, tragically killed by God's crush. Okay, so there's two layers of assholery going on in this scene. Layer one is this god kid who publicly humiliates Noah with his announcement, which sets off layer two, the entire class ridiculing her. And from there on out, the rest of the show is basically a chain reaction of kids being assholes to each other. You're right! I'm an asshole! A big, fucking stinky asshole! Even Noah becomes an asshole at some point to save face, because that's how middle school works, right? 
be an asshole or be destroyed by assholes. But why? When I was writing Here Lies Me, I kept wondering, what is it about adolescence that brings out the worst in kids? My guest, Judith Warner, can explain. She wrote an amazing book called And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. Judith's book helped me to understand why middle schoolers behave like assholes, how we might help them to be less assholey, and how to navigate middle school now as a parent. Judith Warner, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I loved your book so much. So what do you think? Is asshole the word you would use to describe middle schoolers? I think it's too mild, actually. I think that they are perceived as monsters. I mean, just as the worst of the worst, you know, people of an age so terrible that adults run away from talking about it, you know, they don't even want to have the conversation. And I think they're also perceived for parents, other people's middle schoolers at least, as a threat, as a real threat. One of the most surprising things that I learned from your book is that middle schoolers have not always had the reputation of being assholes. So can you walk us through how we got here? Sure. That was something that fascinated me from the start to sort of think about whether the way we perceive them, first of all, is it accurate, but even more so, since our perceptions very often aren't accurate, were they always perceived that way? And are they perceived that way everywhere? And very early on, I mean, before I really had started working on the book, I remember talking about the subject with a French friend. And, you know, she didn't have the reaction that Americans immediately have when you say middle school or middle schoolers, and they're like, oh my God. I had to lay it out why this was a time of interest, you know, what exactly I was talking about. And she said that for her, in her mind, and for the people she knew, it was, you know, thought of as an age where kids were really wretched toward their parents, really unpleasant to be around at home and nasty to their siblings, but that the whole overlay of social awfulness, which I think is the first thing that comes to mind for us in the U.S., just wasn't her association. And I saw that a lot when I spoke to people who had grown up in different countries, mm. that this was either a neutral time for them or, you know, one that was basically fine, maybe even positive, at least when it came to being around friends. Wow. And it wasn't always this way in America either, right? No, it wasn't. And the funny thing about it is that this age group got its bad reputation starting in the time when parents had to be around them all the time. <laughs> because, you know, in the colonies, in the early United States, for one thing, puberty came on later. Like how late did it used to come on? Well, around the turn of the 19th century, the age of puberty really came on at 17 approximately because people had less food. By and large, they were doing a lot more physical work. We were a rural society. And then over the course of the 19th century, it kept falling. It fell a year every 30 years because for uh, middle-class white kids, at least, they were doing less physical labor and they had better food. But parents from the start, I mean, adults from the start, associated the beginning of puberty, though, with sin. 
So it was <laughs> very upsetting to see this happening to younger and younger kids. And so what's the transition of, you know, kids spending more time with their parents and parents seeing them as more and more annoying? Basically, it was the Industrial Revolution, you know, the movement to cities, the emergence of a new middle class, and of the possibility of joining that middle class and rising in it if you stayed in school longer. And we're talking especially for boys, but it carried over to girls as well. And so kids weren't going to work the way they had been at 11 or 12 in the colonial period. And again, I'm talking about middle-class white kids. So they were around for a lot longer, and their parents had to deal with them for a lot longer. And you start to see complaining about them emerging in advice books or in women's magazines. And it sounds very much like the kinds of things that parents say today about their middle school kids. What were they complaining about? That they were difficult, that they were obnoxious, that they went from being these, you know, sweet, just lovely children to something else, to something that was more difficult, more rebellious, and also that made them worry a lot more. You know, from the start, they worried about what sorts of influences they were coming in contact with because they were staying in school longer, they were around other people's kids. And everything about the late 19th century was changing really fast and was really scary to parents. Can you talk about the evolution of the middle school? Because we didn't always have middle schools in America. No, middle schools, as middle schools, are a relatively recent phenomenon. Junior high schools came into being in 1909, and they gathered together kids in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, which corresponded at that point pretty much to the age of puberty. And the separation happened for some good reasons, but wrapped up in a lot of really negative rhetoric at the same time. Children were staying in school longer, by and large. The old schoolhouses that combined K through 8 were overcrowded. You know, there needed to be more school buildings, period. And there were education reformers who felt that kids of the age of 12 to 14 or 15 were capable of a lot more interesting and better sorts of schoolwork than younger kids were, and that it just was inappropriate to have them in the classroom still doing the same kind of rote stuff as the younger kids. And they really wanted to keep kids in school longer so that they could go to high school because relatively few went to high school at that point. So those were kind of the good reasons. And then there were the bad reasons that came out both from the reformers and from parents and commentators, which was, this was such a difficult age. This was such a potentially both corruptible and corrupting age that these kids were kind of uniquely nasty and susceptible, and that it was a good idea to protect the younger kids from them, but also make sure that they were protected from the older kids in the high schools. Yeah, you say in the book that pubescent kids were thought of as so sensitive and vulnerable that they needed their own protected spaces, but also so awful that they needed to be quarantined. Exactly. And in a sense, that dialectic lives on to our day. 
I mean, our own kids are always perceived as being terribly vulnerable, you know, and especially at that age, needing absolute protection, either from their peers or from the outside world, because terrible things can happen. And at the same time, other people's middle schoolers very often are really viewed as a threat of all kinds of contagion, social, emotional, whatever it is. You hear all the same fears over and over again, fear of what music they're going to be listening to, fear of what kind of technology they're going to be using and the effects of that technology on them, just a kind of fear of the unknown on the part of parents, which, believe it or not, all of that was in place and all of that was being talked about as far back as the 1920s. So it's, wow. it's not new. It didn't just come along with the iPhone. So once kids were grouped together in middle schools, that's when all the teasing about looks and clothes began, right? Exactly. Exactly. And by the 1930s, it was a real problem. You know, it was being commented upon in the magazines. Mothers were asking for help. And middle schoolers, or junior high schoolers, of course, then, tortured each other in very similar ways as, you know, I think what we all remember from that age. Their looks, their clothes, whether they fit in or not. I mean, it was all the same pressures, always. And I actually think, if anything, I actually think kids are nicer today. Really? Yeah, certainly than they were when I was growing up. Yeah. Just because I think our culture had really changed in ways that made saying certain things unacceptable. And it wasn't just saying them. It was holding certain views. I mean, there's just a lot more acceptance of different kinds mm -hmm. of people and a premium yeah. placed on acceptance that wasn't there before. I mean, hard though it may be to believe and remember at this point, there had been a lot of progress in who we were as a country, I think. And you write about how even in the Depression, junior high students were experiencing this kind of teasing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it's almost, well, it's typical, isn't it? That they would live in a world of their imaginings of who they wanted to be. So even when families didn't have enough money really to buy enough food, middle schoolers were bugging their parents to get whatever latest article of clothing or fashion or whatever it might be people were talking about at school because it was just vitally important, just as it was vitally important in the more prosperous decades since. It was about status. Yeah, and then there's that example that you wrote about, right, where um, Eleanor Roosevelt had an advice column in a women's magazine and junior high students would write to her begging for clothes so that their peers wouldn't make fun of them. Exactly. That was, <laughs> that was, I guess, the level of desperation at a time when families just couldn't afford things. But also when you think about it, and this is kind of typical, a lack of empathy, right? You know, they wanted what they wanted and it wouldn't have dawned on them that they were even potentially causing their parents pain for asking for something that the family couldn't afford. I'm not condemning them and saying that. It's just, it is very familiar for the age. I mean, you are very much in your own head and your parents in particular don't fully exist. You know, I think when we think about middle school, at least in America, we think about hierarchy and popularity. How did the concept of popularity begin in middle school? How did that hierarchy begin? Well, 
I am fascinated by the work of evolutionary psychologists. And I talk about this a fair bit in the book because I think that it just explains this age so well when you think about what's hardwired, right? Some of these behaviors that hold up across the decades, despite changing times, you know, that you can see described in such similar words over 100 years ago, that it's built in, it's hardwired. And what the hardwiring is, is at puberty, all primates sort themselves hierarchically because it's the moment when they start to separate from their families or kinship groups of origin and go out and, when we're talking about primates, look for a mate. And those are hardwired instincts to individuate, to move away from you know the original family circle and be more open to the wider world. But as part of what goes into that search for mating, the original push to mate, is the building of hierarchies. You know, primates do sort themselves because it, it depends, you know, who gets to pick first, who has higher status. It has to do with access to resources, access to food. You know, the way that primates sum each other up, right, is um, whether they're going to be able to reproduce and carry on their genes. So you have these human translations of that kind of thing, right? Primates are looking for healthy mates. That translates into beauty, right? That middle schoolers care about just unfortunately so much what they look like. They want to be in the right clique, which evolutionary psychologists would talk about in terms of kinship groups. You're leaving your original one, which is today's nuclear family, and you're looking for another place for yourself. And it's a very disorienting moment. So that's why cliques become so important because you want to land somewhere and you want to land somewhere good. You want to land somewhere where you have status. And so, I mean, that's the kind of theory you can kind of take it or leave it. And I'm sure there are plenty of psychologists from other schools of thought who probably find it overblown. But I find it fascinating because I just think that carryover from describing what primates do to what middle schoolers do It's so perfect, you know? It's one of those things, like, even if it's not 100% true, we may as well go with it because it feels true and it's entertaining to read about. So we have popularity because we're monkeys, basically. Yeah, basically. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that surprised me that we can learn a lot about middle schoolers by looking at primates. Actually, maybe it isn't all that surprising. And just like for primates, it's important for middle schoolers to feel accepted by the group. Ever notice how middle schoolers all dress the same? Judith Warner will tell us why that is after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. In middle school, there's such an importance on sameness of like not looking too different from the kids around you, not wanting to stand out. Can you talk about why there is that importance on sameness? It's Again, if you follow the same, you know, evolutionary line of thought, it's safety. There's safety in sameness. You're recreating a sort of family. And if you can achieve that sameness, then it feels a lot safer. And humans have always sorted themselves into in-groups and out-groups. Again, for safety, because if you have your group, then you have, going way back, people to physically protect you, right? And now it's a feeling of, you know, being emotionally protected, Because to be out in the cold, to be alone, especially at that age, it's agony. There's even science to back it up that the pain of being on the outs is experienced by our brains like physical pain. And we're especially attuned to that. We feel it all the more sharply right at that age. And you especially feel it when kids are making fun of you for not looking the same enough. Absolutely. You feel it then, but you also feel it if you're just the odd person out, you know? If you're the person who just doesn't fit in whatever social world you find yourself in, I mean, it's agony. It's terrible. Whether or not people are are making fun of you, simply to be isolated is just terrible. You interviewed around 125 people about their experiences in middle school. You talked to kids, parents, educators, experts, The anecdotes that you write about in the book span the socioeconomic spectrum, but lean strongly upper middle class. And you say in the book that this is because, quote, absurdity reliably rises with affluence. That phrase really stuck with me. What do you mean by that? Well, it isn't that I went looking for upper middle class people because I wanted more absurdity. It was more that people who had stories to tell about parenting today, those stories that are absurd enough that people want to share them tend to come from people in the upper middle class. Because I mean, through my whole period of parenting, which of course isn't over, but it feels like it was a different phase of life because my daughters are in their early 20s now. That's always been the case. You know, upper middle class communities, the absurdity just rises and rises. You know, kind of what people 
get worked up about, put time into, because they can, because they have the time. And, And on a deeper level, because the competition is so fierce, you know, it's all about competition, a very narrow kind of competition. And that makes people kind of crazy. Can you list some of the things that you would consider like absurd concerns or disputes within the upper middle class community? Or I would at least say the people I interviewed, but I want to take another step back for a moment, just in terms of the question of, of, who I interviewed, you know, I really did try hard to get whatever kinds of diversity that I could, because one of the big questions of the book was, you know, how universal is this in reality, or what pieces of it are universal, and what pieces are socially constructed or belong to a, you know, a certain sub-segment of society. But here, as in, you know, all my books, I really have a lack, I would say, of socioeconomic diversity. Just about everybody I interviewed was college-educated, which already limits you a lot in reality. The good thing is that people's families of origin were very diverse socioeconomically. It's just, you know, they landed in a kind of similar place. But just getting to the questions of the stories of insanity, things like just this over-involvement in kids' social lives especially. There's a story in the book about... A mom who calls another mom who is at work, you know, who's a doctor, so it's hard to come to the phone in order to make a formal announcement that the doctor's son is being invited to a birthday party with an invitation hand-delivered. And this leads into a whole story about that invitation and some story of something that happened between the boys a year earlier that just things that parents shouldn't be involved in and that without affluence don't necessarily have the time to be involved in, you know, or or the mental space. Um, There are a lot of stories like that. It's not to say that these kinds of things only happen in the upper middle class because that's not true. But certainly the more time that adults have on their hands, the more that status is a really, really driving concern, the more insane behavior you get with adults getting really worked up, particularly about anything that has to do with their kids' social status. So we have been talking primarily about white families and upper middle class families. What knowledge do you have about non-white, non-upper middle class kids? Like, have they also been perceived of as assholes? Do they also have the experience of middle school as being horrible? So I would just say that a lot of the people I interviewed weren't white. I didn't have the kind of diversity that reflects the country now, especially the younger generation. But I did have a lot of different voices. And again, it was really important to me to be able to figure out what was universal and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that is universal, again, because it's hardwired. I mean, the changes, the physical changes we all go through And also what follows from that and has followed from that just in our evolutionary heritage. And what I found generally also was that, you know, people of different races who grew up in similar kinds of communities socioeconomically had a lot in common in terms of like what was going on in school, you know, what was the environment that they were in. But there was always, particularly For Black people who I spoke with, there was the issue of race and racism that was thrown into that, right? If they were in mostly white 
environments, let's say, which the people who I spoke with mostly had been when they were growing up. So all of these questions that come up at middle school age around identity, like who you are, who you're going to be, you know, looking around you and figuring out what is considered desirable and where you're going to fit, all of that has an added level of complication if you're Black in a society where white good looks are the standard of beauty and desirability. You know, if you're taking in a lot of negative messages about yourself from the culture at large, if you're being treated differently by teachers, let's say, you know, not to mention other adults out in the world. And there's research showing that for Black kids between the ages of 10 and 13, is when you have the biggest discrepancy in school age for the you know how they're treated differently from white kids and the negativity that's brought to bear on them. So it's kind of like you get all of these issues turbocharged when you add structural racism into the mix as another thing that kids have to sort through and deal with. I think that entering middle school can feel like a death in a way because because you're forced to say a sudden permanent goodbye to childhood. I wonder what you think about that and if you think there's ever a chance to mourn that loss. It's really interesting. I saw that with one of my daughters, definitely. And the problem is, like so many other things, it depends on the definitions, right? In her case, let's say, around middle school, all the other girls in her class went in a certain direction, right, of what it meant to be desirable, popular, what was interesting, what was worthwhile, everything. That didn't suit her at all. I mean, in the book, I say, I think of her as, and this really dates when she was in school, but a Luna Lovegood in a sea of Miley Cyruses. You know, in a case like that, when that's the norm that's held up for you for the present and future, yeah, you would mourn childhood because it was completely other. But if you were in an environment where there were a lot of different choices and models of how you can be okay, and I think also maybe in a home where there's, again, a kind of critical eye on the most mainstream ways of being, that I think there's less to mourn because you don't have to give up sort of being who you were. That said, you also become aware of a whole lot more. And in becoming aware, you become aware of a lot of bad things, you know? And that's that's painful no matter what, right? Simply seeing the world around you with, you know, more wide open eyes necessarily is tough and kind of scary. I remember a psychologist telling me that she thinks, you know, all smart girls, a lot of them anyway, develop real anxiety at around 11 or 12 because they're seeing things, because they're just taking in more than they can necessarily digest intellectually or, you know, make sense of and also be able to tell kind of what's super important, what's not. It's just all new. You write about how everybody feels unsafe in middle school, no matter your gender. And I think that, um, I mean, I think these things are still happening, but certainly when I was growing up, a lot of just brutal stuff was going on in middle school with kids like tearing each other apart verbally and physically. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the ways that people of different genders typically feel unsafe in middle school? I think for one thing, it's always worth remembering that girls tend to mature like 18 months to two years before boys. 
And that doesn't just have to do with their bodies externally. It also has to do with their brains. So the things that we're talking about happening for kids in middle school, I think there's a certain extent to which they become even more pronounced for boys a couple of years later, let's say. Um, You know, I thought going into it that, like a lot of people, that a lot of what I'm talking about is exclusively a girl thing, you know, that the boys are just on the outside of it. And that's just not true at all. I mean, that what we refer to as mean girl stuff goes on among boys just as much. When we talk about mean girl stuff, what do you mean? Oh, mean girl stuff just being the kind of the clickishness, the nastiness, the tearing people apart verbally, at least. And it isn't just girls who do this. I really wish we would retire the phrase because it's, it's not accurate and it's prejudicial, too. I mean, it's boys and girls. Um, it's still, I was shocked by the degree to which when my daughters were, you know, at that age, the boys still kind of set the standard for who was pretty desirable, cool, whatever. I would have thought that that would have changed, that somehow things would be more egalitarian and they and they weren't. And it doesn't matter that, you know, we all know the statistics about girls doing much better in school, et cetera. When it just came to like, who decided what was cool, it was still the boys. I'd like to think, you know, 10 years later, that maybe that isn't the case. I think that it's interesting now, um, at least in some communities, there is starting to be more acceptance around different identities, different gender identities and sexual identities. I'm seeing that in my daughter's school, but I am still seeing if a kid is different enough, they still get the verbal abuse. Can you talk about like how things have changed Well, I think what hasn't changed is that some of what kids react to at that age is intangible, right? It's not necessarily sexual identity or the way someone dresses. I mean, sometimes it is. But there are also things that make kids vulnerable to being treated badly by their peers. And I think they tend to be things that we don't see and that we don't necessarily think about and that kids don't articulate to themselves outright. But You know, kids with weaker social skills, for whatever reason, are often on the outs and not treated well by their peers. Kids with a lot of anxiety, kids who are starting to show signs of a mood disorder, let's say, you know, things that make them different, the other kids react to in a really brutal and nasty way very often. And I think those things are particularly kind of difficult and heartbreaking. Because it's as though the kids have radar for it, but very often, you know, other parents do as well. And somebody who is already very vulnerable ends up in an even more vulnerable position. So it's something that is really tough and that I hope as teachers and schools are thinking more about socio-emotional learning and, and all of that, that they'll be more up stepping forward more in looking out for and seeing and helping those kids with skills that could make their lives better. Even if their classmates are jerks, it's not a question of becoming like everyone else. It's just a question of having the skills to make it through a crappy period as well as possible. It gives me hope to think that today, in at least some middle schools, 
kids have access to more social and emotional tools than they did when I was growing up. Because those wounds we suffer in middle school, for a lot of adults, they stick around. After one last short break, I'll ask Judith, how do those memories shape us now as adults? Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. In U.S. working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. I want to shift gears here and talk about how middle school comes back to haunt adults. You talk to a lot of adults about their middle school experiences from when they were kids. So what were some of the things that they told you? The stories were incredible. I mean, and I found that, you know, if you just start with, you know, an open-ended question, you know, what was middle school like for you or junior high? What were those years like for you? You get somebody's life bound up in two, two and a half hours. You just, you hear this kind of condensation of everything, like, you know, what kind of family they grew up in, the kind of place they grew up in, how they came to be who they are today and think about themselves as they do today. And even very often, you know, how they got on the path that they've stayed on since in terms of what they did with their lives. And whether it's because that time of life is so incredibly important or whether it's because we give it so much importance. You know, when we tell our life stories, it's some kind of combination of the two. I don't necessarily come down one way or the other because both are valid. But the stories were just amazing. I mean, you know, you can close your eyes and imagine what people are telling you because they tell it with so much detail. They remember things in such a detailed way as we all do from that time. You know, they told stories about Well, I guess, as you said, you know, you said it in terms of mourning, like a death of childhood. I thought of it more as disillusionment. 
or having their eyes painfully open to something not great that they simply didn't see before, let's say the state of their parents' marriage or characteristics of their mothers or fathers, which were really not good, you know, that they had managed not to see before, or their place in the community, if they were less well-off than other people. Just in general, a wider awareness of the world in ways that were just not necessarily great. So I think that as adults, we like to think that we've completely outgrown our middle school selves. But those early traumas, for those of us who had traumas, can be really hard to shake. What did you learn about how middle school experiences can come back to haunt us as adults? It isn't as direct as I thought. You know, I think when I first had the idea for wanting to write about this, it was really sort of seeing the way the moms around me were acting, noticing the intensity of what I was feeling, and wondering, I'd like to think, I'm leaving myself out of the acting as though I didn't do anything wrong. Who knows? I no doubt did. But I mean, I was aware of how I was feeling and that it was out of whack. And so I kind of imagined us all with these like inner 12-year-olds, you know, who were starting to rise up and take over. And it's not that direct. But I think that a lot of the perceptions that we have from that time, the way we perceive ourselves in relation to other people, those perceptions live on more unquestioned than we realize because they feel true, in part because our memories of that time tend to be so sharp, right? And they tend to feel like memories that were generated by our adult selves. You know, the language is the same. We have enough maturity at that point to be pretty verbal and pretty sophisticated in a way that is a lot greater than our emotional sophistication. So I do think people who were quote unquote unpopular, uncool or whatever, that stays with them, even though they know it shouldn't. Uh, I heard that a lot. I mean, the title of my book, and then they stopped talking to me, people very often, in fact, majority of the time, take that to mean like their kid stops talking to them and goes into their room and shuts the door. It isn't what I meant. What I meant was the traumatic experience I had coming into school and finding that nobody was talking to me. You know, my friend group had turned on me. I got, you got dropped. It was beyond dropped. I got really sort of stigmatized because nobody was talking to me. There was no one. And that I thought for a very long time that it was like my central story and also something uniquely horrible that had just happened to me. And then by the time I got to college, I started hearing the story that the same thing had happened to others. And for the book, of course, there were a lot of stories like that. I mean, that's just a common thing, unfortunately. It happened to me. Yeah. And it, oh my God, it hurts so much. I mean, I don't know if anything, frankly, ever hurts like that again. It, it's just, you know, the world falls away from you. That's what it felt like to me. There's this carryover that, I mean, it drives my friends crazy. And I do it a whole lot less now. But, you know, being convinced that someone's mad at me, like, oh, are you mad at me? Because, I mean, I'm 56 years old, right? <laughs> but, you know, this idea that you could be going along and then, all of a sudden someone or everyone hates you and you don't know why is a perfectly like plausible scenario, you know, that stays with you. And it's also, frankly, if I encounter a social situation, which unfortunately as adults, you do still have where somebody, I don't know, like starts hating you for some obscure reason that you can, you know, that is like my kryptonite. Mm -hmm. It used to hurt 
horribly. And now it just makes me really angry. You found that like middle school experiences were coming back to haunt people, not only in their social lives, but also at work and in long-term health implications. Yeah. I mean, there was a guy who I interviewed who had his first bout of OCD in high school after coming out of an experience just like mine, where his friends stopped talking to him and then the whole school stopped talking to him. And in his case, it was worse because he was getting beaten up and it went on for much longer. I mean, it went on for like a year, whereas for me, I think it was maybe a week, but it felt like forever. And then similarly enough, when he kind of found his people in high school, he was always afraid from then on that they would turn on him. And carried that forward into adulthood and worried that, again, that people could just turn on him. And also found when he was in one workplace where he had a boss who kind of acted like a mean middle schooler in terms of, you know, having in-groups and out-groups and turning on people, just the stuff that we associate with the nastiness of that age. And he was her number two. He was sort of her henchman in a way, you know, having to handle a lot of the ugly stuff or the fallout that his OCD started coming back. It was that triggering. They had to leave the job. Are there similarities, do you think, between middle school and middle age? Definitely. I mean, there's so much that happens to kids in middle school where it's kind of like they're coming into the world, being in the world a certain way, and entering a world that's set up in every possible way to be bad for them, to frustrate them, to receive them badly, to have them in institutions not meant for them. I mean, when I was writing, I kept thinking of it just as the clusterfuck. I mean, for a long time, one of the chapters was titled The Clusterfuck to sort of sum that up and then took it out. But the middle school and middle age thing is kind of this, a very similar thing is certainly part of that, that they're in this moment of enormous change and vulnerability and identity questioning and being super aware of like how they rank, what kind of status they have and their family has. And a lot of adults in middle age are going through the same thing. I mean, going through physical changes, I mean, depending on what age women were where they had their kids, potentially going through menopause or almost menopause, but one way or the other, at least the way I experienced it, you have the same body through most of adulthood, and then all of a sudden things start falling apart. They're also very often questioning where they are socially and professionally and financially. You know, there's a sense at a certain point, probably in the 50s, of arrival and very often not having arrived where you hoped you would be. And that's pretty awful if you don't have the sense of having arrived where you hoped you'd be. And of course, there are all these external forces in recent decades that have made that that much more difficult. So all of the status stuff and the appearance stuff, et cetera, that kids are going through, the adults, I think, are especially vulnerable to getting worked up about, right? Because whether they're aware of it or not, they're dealing with a lot of the same issues themselves. I think when most adults talk about middle school, they identify as victims. But of course, there are also bullies. And you talked to some people who identified as bullies. What did you learn from them? Well, they were really sorry. I mean, they were horribly ashamed. I mean, in a couple of cases, it was almost like they had spent their adult lives in penance, doing things where they were trying to help people, where they were trying to make sure that others didn't behave as they had behaved. I also found it interesting that often they didn't 
necessarily remember some of what they had done, you know, that someone would bring it to them in adulthood and then they would remember it, but they had buried it probably because as time passed, it was really out of line with, with who they wanted to be or were becoming or what they were, I guess, ashamed of. They didn't want to hold on to, or, or just, I think it's more really couldn't assimilate into who they were. One thing that was very interesting was that sometimes if you ask, you know, why did you do that? Why did you do that to that person? There was no answer. They literally, they could not access an answer. It was more kind of just because there was nothing actually about her. There was nothing wrong with her. There was nothing. It was, I don't know. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I think it comes down to the fact that we do overestimate the extent to which our 12 and 13-year-old selves were kind of grown up, right? Or that kids that age think like we do. I, I don't think they do. And I think that's part of the reason very often people can't access a reason because it just wasn't happening on that level of mind where they could or where we, we as adults can make sense of it. One thing that I did notice, and I mean, there's social science on this, is that often people who are popular at that age have good social skills. I mean, it depends what kind of popular too. If they're the kind of popular where somebody is liked, they certainly have good social skills. If they're the kind of popular where somebody is just, you know, powerful, then they have sort of good skills for reading a room, knowing where the strengths are and the vulnerabilities are and how to surf that well. Those kinds of things stay with a person, right? I remember one woman I interviewed who had been mean said that she has to fight the tendencies every day because they are her wiring. That's the way she is. Those are the skills she has and that she's constantly trying to overcome it. I thought that was really funny and interesting. I mean, I think, though, a couple of things. One is that the victim-bully dichotomy is not as cut and dry as we think it is. I think most of us were probably less nice at certain points than we think we were, and that sometimes we gave as good as we got, but we don't necessarily remember that, unfortunately. And just a word on the term bully, I do think that we have to guard against overusing it because bullying is terrible. It's a crime in many states. And it refers specifically to, you know, a pattern of abuse that happens to a person that goes on over time that's carried out by one or a group of other people. It's horrifically damaging, and it's something that adults should absolutely have their eyes open for and intervene in to make it stop. A lot of what goes on with kids that age, though, the majority of it, is of a different order. It's not as terrible as that. And I think the problem with overusing the word bully is that, first of all, you diminish the horror of it when it really is happening. But also, I think it doesn't give kids who are suffering and who are suffering more from kind of just the day-to-day meanness and crap. It's not empowering, right? There are a lot of ways of thinking about what's going on that kids can have, that adults can help them have, that give them more avenues for finding a way out, turning the situation around to the extent that it's possible, but just doing something for themselves that makes it better for themselves. We've established that middle school is pretty universally brutal, but we don't see that brutality often reflected in books about middle school. 
you know, the edges are are usually softened. The kids don't curse. They don't talk about sex as explicitly as they really do in real life. The bullying isn't quite as awful. On TV, though, we have Big Mouth. We have Pen15. Those shows are marketed to an adult audience, though. And I get, like, I get that we don't want to scare kids. And I get that kids read up generally. But I do wonder why publishers seem to think that kids can't handle reading about what is actually going on in their lives in such a universal way. And actually, I I just want to give you some context here. My show, Here Lies Me, is a podcast because I, I also write young adult novels. And back in 2006, I first conceived of it as a book, but I was told that it couldn't be a book because if I wanted it to be a book, I would have to age the characters up to high school so that they could curse and so that like I could have the dark things happen that I wanted that that I think are realistic, right? But that you can't have a book about middle school have this kind of darkness in it. But this stuff is happening all over the place. It's been happening for decades. Why do you think we can't like trust kids to read about what is actually going on in their lives? I think it's because of the same sort of adult squeamishness that we were talking about at the very beginning, right? This is an age that adults have a really hard time with. Kids this age trigger a lot in adults. And one of the things they trigger that's most painful is the loss of the sort of sweet, cuddly child, right? And the desire to have that phase of childhood last longer. And it's another part of the clusterfuck, I think, Because you have a lot of kids who are really moving past that, who are really experiencing, you know, just as you said, talking completely differently, thinking about different kinds of things, you know, in another place with their parents exerting this downward pull. But, you know, on the publishing question, I mean, that's for adults. That's not for kids, right? I mean, because it's adults who are buying the books. So that's a marketing issue. Yeah. Aren't books, though, like one of the things that we get out of books is healing, right? And it just seems to me like if this is such a universal experience, then isn't it possible that having more books that are more realistic about middle school could be a way of addressing things like bullying and harassment in like a real way and having kids start to have real conversations and be more empathetic towards each other? Totally. I mean, yes, I agree with you 100%. But I think a decision like that, you know, what specifically you were talking about revolves around the fact that it is parents who buy books. So you are selling to that population. And so if you are writing something that they don't want to deal with, right, that they don't want their kid quote unquote exposed to, then that's what you get. But middle schoolers who enjoy reading, you know, for whom reading is, you know, an easy and nice fun activity are going to be reading far beyond their age. It's an adult issue. It's not a kid issue. Yeah. I think there's a lot of um, fretting these days over social media and its impact on kids. And when I think about if there had been social media around when I was in middle school, would things have been worse? My answer to myself is, oh yeah, it was already bad and it would have been even worse. But I wonder if it's just different. Like, are we right or wrong? that social media makes things worse? I think it does make things worse because it's 24-7, right? It's like total reality. There's no escape. There's no escape from anything. And it can sort of hop from school to school, too. I mean, if there's some kind of bullying campaign about 
someone, it just so easily spreads. But at the same time, social media is a tool like any tool. I mean, we were cruel to each other back in the analog days too. I don't think that it has changed kids. I don't think kids are any worse than they were in earlier generations. Again, if anything, I think what I noticed at least was that by and large, they were somewhat nicer. You know, tools are what you make of them. And I think the world was revolutionized when we started having access to social media. And then especially once we had smartphones that were with us all the time, where you could access everything. And these are tools that we have not figured out how to use intelligently. And we have to, because they're not going away. Parents can't protect their kids from what's happening online the way they think they can. They just plain can't because the kids will get around you and do whatever they want to do and will always be more technologically sophisticated than you will be. So there have to be other ways of making them more aware and better educated about how to use these tools and keep themselves whole. So I did a survey of people. I used to have a show called The Longest Shortest Time about parenthood. And when I was ending it, I did a survey of listeners. Almost 400 people responded. I was asking them about their middle school experiences. And I also asked people to talk about their observations of middle schoolers in their lives, like if they were parents or educators. And I've heard a lot of educators say that they love teaching middle schoolers. This this was surprising to me. And they said it's mainly because the kids can be so earnest. You know, they're not jaded like high schoolers. And I got to say, as a parent, having a middle schooler, this has been my favorite age so far. Like, I'm floored by her curiosity. And actually, she's so much easier to reason with now. And she's become so kind. I feel like I'm getting to see what kind of an adult she's going to be. But like middle schoolers do have this reputation of being assholes. And so I wonder, like, what are some simple things we can do to help bring out the empathy and kindness and interesting qualities of middle schoolers that that other people are seeing, but most people aren't? I think we can get ourselves in check. Remember, so much of what we think about middle schoolers is projection and always has been with kids this age. What was said about them, written about them, known about them to a large extent, all of that was a reflection of adults. It was all coming from adults and it was a reflection of adult point of view. So we have to actually see them and we have to separate ourselves from them and who they are to be able to actually see them for who they are. And also remember that there are a lot of really good sides to this age and they've always been commented upon and it's what the teachers were saying to you, you know, that kids' brains are changing in ways that make them more aware of the world around them. So it makes them more curious about the world around them. They become capable of doing higher level work so that they can read differently. They can read other different things and they can take in information differently. And they also tend to have a very strong feeling at that age of justice, injustice, and they're interested in learning more about the wider world. And I think that's, you know, the earnestness that they mentioned. And I found that too in talking to educators. And it's funny to think of high schoolers as jaded, you know, from being that much older, but everything isn't new anymore the way it is for somebody who is 11 or 12. 
And I think also by the time they're in high school, they really have a relatively low opinion of adults. And at least at the beginning of middle school, you know, they don't necessarily find adults as intolerable as they will a couple of years up. Um, so I, I agree with you. I have this theory that, you know, we hear a lot about uh, harassment in the workplace, in college, in high school, but I have a theory that it actually really begins in middle school. And that because middle schoolers are kind of actually more, more open to hearing from adults, that if we addressed harassment and assault more head on in middle school, that we could actually prevent more harassment and assaults from adults and teenagers. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you completely. And I think that that holds for so many things that really do begin at that age. You know, so many problems begin at that age. And again, as we were saying earlier, so much of what people carry forward with them starts at that point. And it's a point when they are open to learning from adults who are not their parents. Because a lot of the attitudes that lead to things like, you know, harassment, assault, sorry to say this, but a lot of the values that underlie that come from home. And so educators who want to change things have a real opportunity with middle school age kids to get them thinking differently and questioning some of the assumptions that they've grown up with. And that can be a very, very good thing. I mean, I don't mean to demonize parents, but parents, too, have the opportunity when kids are that age to get them thinking in the kind of moral or value-driven way that they really want them to. And that's another reason why I think parents have to watch out for letting their you know, inner middle schoolers be kindled when their kids hit that age, right? Because it's very tempting to get down in the weeds, you know, and gossip or whatever. It's so important to try to lead them in the direction that you really deep down want them to go. But I couldn't agree more strongly. And I feel that especially with social media, that there ought to be real social media literacy that is taught starting before kids are really deep into it. You know, maybe even fifth grade, since by seventh, they're completely in it usually, right? So fifth, sixth grade, to get them to think about when people curate their lives, right? People do curate their lives online, that what you're seeing is not real. Even just talking about filters, preparing them to question and kind of realize the artifice that's there. And also, and this is true for adults too, right? It's easy to say things online that you wouldn't say in, in reality to someone's face. And if you're that age, you really don't think about it because you're just not thinking about other people they can be made more aware at an earlier age of the impact of their words. They just, they have to be taught. Even the ones who end up doing mean things much of the time are not inherently bad people, right? They're just, they're lacking in a certain degree of empathy because they just haven't gotten there yet, but they can and should be taught. So middle schoolers, not necessarily assholes, and could be key to um, helping us toward a kinder and gentler future. Definitely. Well, Judith Warner, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it.
My podcast, Here Lies Me, is available wherever you get your podcasts. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Box Talk. If you like the show, let us know. You hear room for improvement? We want to know that too. We are curious to know what you think. We want to know what you want to hear more of, what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, please send us your thoughts at boxconversations at box.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review it, and come back next week for a brand new episode. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.